Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, along with my co-host and dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. How you doing, Pops? Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Corey. Yeah, yeah. And we are co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And as always, please hit that subscribe button, rate us, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. And we are joined today by two special guests, Joe Trippy and Christine Trippy. Many may know Joe from his great podcast, That Trippy Show. Really been enjoying that. And Joe's also been running political campaigns at every level in U.S. politics and even internationally, starting in silly city politics in Northern California, and then jumping into the big, big leagues on Ted Kennedy's campaign for the Democratic nomination for president in 1980. Joe's also yes, been involved. I'm old. What's that? <laughs> I'm old. You're not the oldest on this uh, on this conversation. Oh, sorry, Ron. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've got you by about a decade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, you're motivated by a lot of the same things. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, how I've heard your story and have read your book about how you were motivated by the Bobby Kennedy campaign that was tragically cut short. But, uh, you know, Joe's also been involved in some groundbreaking what we call bottom up strategies along the way, like when he ran Governor Howard Dean's grassroots political uh, presidential campaign in 04. More recently, he helped Doug Jones win the special election for Alabama Senate seat. He's the first Democrat to get elected to the Senate in Alabama in decades. And we're really fortunate also today to, to be joined by Christine Trippy, the next generation of Trippies. Uh, she also decided to get into the crazy world of politics. Christine started in communications, specializing in special events, social media and fundraising, and was recently working on the team for Kamala Harris's presidential run. And I can't wait to hear your insights, Christine, about what issues are motivating voters today, how folks are engaging, what's effective and where you see things going from here. Joe, Christine, thank you so much for joining us. How are you both doing? Great to be with Great. you and uh, doing us. good. Thanks for having us. Good, good, good. Well, let me start this way. I thought we'd start with a little bit of background. Joe, I've heard the story about, um, like I mentioned, when you were 11, you were really motivated by the Bobby Kennedy run for president in 68. Yeah. Um, and in, in reading your book, the the revolution will not be televised also, by the way, shameless. Well, not shameless for me. I just, I'm just really, really enjoying it. Um, it was cool to learn about that first city council race you got involved with while you were still in college at San Jose state. Could you share a bit about what really motivated you to jump into the ring and how you got started in politics? I think it was my just, uh, something in me did not like what I was saying about race in the United States and, and I think Bobby Kennedy sort of got me to focus on it. His candidacy got me to focus on it as well as that year in 68 where he and Martin Luther King, you know, the, the tragedy there. 
But that clearly manifested itself in the local race in San Jose, where I was an aeronautical engineering major, and an African-American woman named Iola Williams was running against a, a 22-year incumbent on the city council named Joe Cola. And uh, basically, everybody in town said, Joe Cola is going to get reelected because the only person who's filed against him or one of the few people to file against him was an African-American woman, San Jose's 3% African-American, ergo, Joe Cole is going to get reelected and something about that, just, just the notion that, that that was enough, that's the only reason, made me get active uh, in a way that I, I didn't as an aeronautical engineering major. Uh, you know, I was all of a sudden knocking on doors and getting other kids on campus to go knock on doors. And, and Iola eventually uh, got on the city council. And about the same time, the Kennedy organization was looking for good organizers around the country. Someone nabbed me and said, you know, do you want to work for the senator? And I, I, I quit school. I got on, get in my car and drove east as fast as I could and uh, literally never went, never looked back. It's been a, a wild ride ever since. And Christine, I, I was curious about you. Why did you decide to get involved and how did you get your, how did you get your start? <laughs> Um, actually, I was thinking about this today. Uh, growing up, I actually hated politics. <laughs> yeah, well. um, and it wasn't for the reasons that most people hate politics. It was because both my parents worked in politics. Um, and so I just remember hating even years when I was younger, because it meant that there was going to be an election and that both my parents were going to be super busy. And my dad especially would be traveling a lot. Um, and so uh, selfishly, it also meant that we weren't going to be going on like a big summer vacation. Um, so yeah, that, that did not happen in even years. Yeah, there's nothing good. Yeah. Vacation. My bad. My bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so while I was completely immersed in politics, I wasn't the biggest fan. Um, but that really changed when I was in high school. And I went to Burlington, Vermont to visit my dad while he was working on Howard Dean's campaign. And it was sort of the first time I was able to see him in his element and be old enough to appreciate it. And um, he was in this room filled with like these young, cool college kids who were all working on the campaign. And he was speaking to them and they were hanging on every single word, which was a shock to high school me. Like I was like, what? It just seeing all of those people and how much they respected my dad and, and more importantly, what they were able to accomplish together and how hard they fought for what they believed in. Um, that was a huge turning point for me personally. And after that, I started um, getting more involved in politics and local candidates. I worked um, on Ralph Northam's inaugural committee. Um, and then that eventually led to me working on Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. And now I work for um, my dad's firm and his candidates. And it's funny because my boyfriend was saying, you're always so busy on the even years. So <laughs> it actually came full circle a little bit, but I really, really enjoy it. And um, yeah, I love the experience. So uh, vice president, now vice president, then Senator Kamala Harris, was that the first national campaign that you were involved in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, besides on Howard Dean, I got to go to like, you know, some events, but I was, I was younger then. I volunteered. Um, I have a question for you, Christine. Yeah. Name three issues that you disagree with your dad on. Oh, oh you, you just want to get right into it. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I want to know too. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, I would have to think about that actually. You know, an inheritance is hanging in the balance. Right now. <laughs> Name one. I think he's a little bit more moderate. Oh. Me. It might. It might just be an age thing. <laughs> But I, I think I'm a little bit more progressive on some issues. You're more woke than me, for sure. That's definitely <laughs> yeah. true. That's funny. Because in, in our family, it's just the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Corey's the conservative, and I'm uh, I'm pretty woke. Yeah. Well, if I'm the that's what I'm saying. If, if I'm the moderate in the family, we're in deep. You know, they, yeah. we're pretty far off the charts there. Yeah. I did do run Howard Dean's campaign. You know, it wasn't like the it wasn't like the most center. Uh, right campaign in the history of the, country, of the party. That campaign I was going to ask you about, because that was pretty groundbreaking in, in a lot of other respects. Uh, I, I use the term bottom up, uh, really grassroots. Um, was it specifically your, I mean, you, you're a lifelong, you know, tech head, uh, geek, nerd, if you will. Yeah. Um, was it just knowing that there are these tools available? Uh, was it a longing to reach out to voters in a new way? Was it a strategic thing or was it a combination of all those things? It was more, I'd say two things. One is I was always frustrated with the one-way nature of TV with sort of, you know, whether it's an advertisement for toothpaste, everything sort of preaching at you and telling you how great it is or they are and no way to, no way to, to communicate back and forth, particularly being a, you know, starting out as a $15 a day organizer. Uh, in Iowa, uh, where you're at the door, everything's, you know, th that that exchange. TV just frustrated the hell out of me about how powerful it was. So, you know, going back to Jerry Brown's campaign in 1992 for president, me and Joe Costello, who was working for him at the time, uh, came up with the idea of an 800 number. You know, what if you put an 800 number at the, on the screen and ask people to connect with you? And we raised I think $8 million doing that. And by the way, that was when, but back then the only people calling 800 numbers was for sex talk lines. They were, they, we're not talking about, this was not something that you would see on TV for buying the, the copper frying pan, right? You know, that, that started after the, the Brown campaign. So we got some interactivity, but you know, it's still just this, yeah, call a number and you're going to get a, a, maybe a life caller on the other. And we're trying to figure that out. But that urge constantly pushed me to wanting to find some way to connect with voters and actually empower them to become part of the campaign. And so when uh, all those years later, I guess 12 or so years later, when Howard went in uh, 2003, when he called, I did not want to run the campaign. I, I mean, I did. I had no interest in running another uh, campaign for president or you, being, you have the record uh, for swearing off uh, presidential campaigns yeah, and then getting sucked into one again. And uh, I just said, look, the only way I'll do it is we can do it different. And uh, the tools weren't uh, what they are today. Obviously, the, the smartphone iPad, iPhone didn't get launched until 2007. YouTube didn't exist. Facebook was on two college campuses. Twitter didn't exist. We were making it up. I mean, literally make no one had broadband. I mean, very few citizens had the ability to watch video online because the, the, the bandwidth wasn't there. Uh, but we invented Dean TV, had 200,000 people watching that. But no, you know, I mean, so it was more that, that urge I had all through, again, being an engineering major in, San, in Silicon Valley and San Jose State, and always had this pull between 
was a politician going to change people's lives more? Would technology change people's lives more? And or could we use technology to actually connect with people uh, more directly to the to their government and to their officials? And so I saw Dean uh, the Dean campaign as a way to try try that. And then the second piece of it is necessity. There were no big donors or big shots in the Democratic Party or former members of Congress or ambassadors or or chairs of the part you know in county committees that were going to be for Howard Dean I mean they didn't even know who he was and he, and, and by the way he wasn't you know wasn't one of the three or four front, co-front runners we were running John Kerry Dick Gephardt John Edwards at the time and others but they were better known than us so you know where were we going to get the 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 ability to grow, to raise money, to make us, to take our stand. And so, yeah, it was inventing. We had to reinvent how you do it. And uh, I still think that that crew that uh, Christine watched was a privilege to work with those guys. I mean, they were just amazing uh, with what they were able to create and do. Uh, and, and again, I think that had a lot to do with Obama winning uh, four years later. Once those tools were even more powerful, they could go to school on our mistakes and we made plenty, I made plenty. And Obama was, you know, also, uh, you know, Dean was a once in a lifetime kind of candidate, but so was Barack Obama in a much different way and in a way that uh, I thought, I think was able to get broader support and, and not only get the, the, he was able to attract um, a lot of the status quo players, even away from Hillary Clinton. Uh, it started with outside, but he was able to attract insider the inside, which uh, the Dean campaign never was able to do. As a politically interested person who wasn't involved, who's never been involved in a campaign, I mean, what happened to Dean? I mean, he seemed to be a shooting star. All of a sudden he was a front runner and then he had one bad moment with that scream and the whole thing kind of exploded. I don't think, I think that we were a campaign and Howard was a candidate that made a lot of mistakes early on in the campaign. I mean, when he was just starting out. And I think the press corps let us get away with a lot of it, right? Because here's this cute campaign that doesn't have a chance in hell of being elected president, even getting the nomination. So no one's going to stop the front page of the New York Times to say, some guy you never heard of and are never going to hear of just said on the stage that if, you know, some, some something uh, he, you know, anyway, so these, these mistakes were back there. And I actually think the press sort of was at a place where, okay, he's a front runner now. And we let him get away. We let these guys get away with a lot. And there's, and if he gives us one more shot Mm. to, to at least tell people, wait a minute, watch, you know, be careful what you're doing here. By the way, he had matured. One of the things is, he, you know, you early in the campaign, you make a lot of mistakes. Later on, hopefully you get better. So he wasn't that guy that they thought they were trying to, to tell the world about, but they still wanted, made it, wanted to make sure, okay, if you guys are going to nominate him, we want you to know. We, uh, my hands are clean now. I've, I've made it clear that you, you know, that he, you know, whether it was he can lose his temper. By the way, the other side of this was there were all the other campaigns were were building this narrative that he 
he's hot off the hip, you know, he, he fires first, asks questions later. I mean, all these kind of things that they were trying to create that were all hitting a critical point. And then the one thing that happens is you make a mistake, all your enemies, everybody. And by then they were all enemies because none of them were, I mean, these are now campaigns, all four of those campaigns were on the phone on a conference call every morning on a stop dean call. So you have that happening, the press corps is primed and and we 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 it's an advanced mistake, the wrong micro wrong kind of microphone, unidirectional. He doesn't know that. And the rest is, you know, the, the, the takedown happens. So one thing I'd say is the the press corps, particularly with an underdog, loves to sort of watch that story of the underdog going get gaining on the on the leaders. And my experience, and this has been being on both sides of it, whether it was I with was Vice President Mondale in 84 and Hart was the guy who who is coming up as the underdog. But man, they just as happy to to do to okay, he's here now, watch this and assist on the way down. And so it's it, it's not conscious. I don't mean that that way. I'm not attacking the press. I just mean it's there's something in the psyche of journalism. That's the story, right? It's a great story that the guy took it. There are now two possible great stories, miracle he's president or watch him crash and burn. And so, by the way, I think they're open to both those stories. They are the press corps is open to both of them. They're, but, they're just rooting for a good story. Right. And now and now wait, the flaps on the plane look like they are been the pilots put them in the wrong in the wrong formation this sucker is going to crash we know where this story's going let's go and so that's i mean you get that's how you sort of get this amplification then um once you make the mistake but it starts with you making the, your campaign your candidate or you uh making the mistake i made a crazy one the sunday before iowa i was on gosh crossfire with Paul Begala, the CNN, you know, show, and uh, one of them goes, "Hey, congratulations on Al Gore's endorsement. Who's gonna be? Who's who? Are you gonna get next, Jimmy Carter?" I think Paul was the one who asked the question, and I said, "Well, watch us at church on Sunday at, his, at in Plains, Georgia, on Sunday." Now we were going to worship in Jimmy Carter's church with Jimmy Carter Sunday. But I knew Jimmy Carter wasn't going to endorse us. No hell way that was going to happen. We were just going there. It, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm live on the air, and I just want to go, please bring that back, bring it back. <laughs> because as soon as I was off the air, all, breaking news, Dean's going to Plains, Georgia, to get Jimmy Carter's endorsement. Well, we get down there. And of course, Jimmy Carter walks into the press room and just goes, I am not endorsing him. I was never going to endorse him. And now, <laughs> and this is before, like a couple of days before Iowa. So, it's, you know, then you, you, you know, there the, the things like this, that's what I'm saying. We were making, and that's what I mean. It's not just Howard, but the camp, you know, the, the, the advanced person with the wrong microphone, uh, me somehow inexplicably, uh, falling into a watch Jimmy Carter on Sunday. I mean, what was I thinking? 
but about the, you know, I can claim I, you're operating on two hours of sleep max in the presidential <laughs> campaign at that point. But anyway, so it, it, it just things start to can unravel. P part of it too is that a campaign like ours, you're literally strapping the wings on the plane as it's running down the runway. I mean, it's literally, you're putting the central air data computer and you're putting that in, you're putting an altimeter in, you're praying the guys have strong rubber bands holding the wings together, just as the tower says, uh, you hear your co-pilot say V2 and you're taking off, that the wings won't come off. Uh, meanwhile, John Kerry's been planning this for 20 years, right? That plane was built, Hillary Clinton, are you kidding me? Yeah. That plane was built. Um, it was, you know, all, all that stuff. The anybody challenging, it, even Biden, if you're, if you're uh, uh, Andrew Yang or Mayor Pete or Kamala Harris, uh, and even Kamala Harris, who I'm sure had some at least like put a down payment on on the wheels and, and wings and, and and an engine, was still basically putting it together in the middle of those primary campaigns. And that's how, so you can, things can just start to fall apart, not because of anything other than the front runners have advantages, big ones. I mean, that was, it was amazing that Biden was like, um, he, he was like yesterday's dead fish until South Carolina. Then all of a sudden in 24 hours, he was the man. Yeah. Well, I thought I always thought that I two years ahead of time, uh, I, I said that Joe Biden was going to be the nominee, uh, that people just did not understand the dynamics of a Democratic presidential primary election that Iowa, New Hampshire, he'd get killed in. Um, there's not enough diversity there for a candidate like him to to succeed, uh, but that as soon as he got out of those two states, forget about it. It's over. And. Uh, and in fact, you know, I, I think like 10 of those, 10, 12 of those candidates called me up and said, hey, some would, would you work for me? Some were just, hey, what's your, can you tell me what you think? And I was like, yeah, you know, uh, you're, you're not going to beat Joe Biden. He just had, our party is, it basically gets down to who can win among a diverse voter pool. And if you can win where diversity, that's the only thing that matters in the end. Uh, it does, the, or those first two states only set up that you're one of the people vying for that title, right? Not, they're not, so is it Walter Mondale versus Gary Hart? Well, Walter Mondale versus Gary Hart, yeah, it was a dogfight, but Fritz is going to do much better with divert, you know, with African-Americans, Hispanics, et cetera, going forward. Uh, Clinton versus Songus. I mean, done deal, over. <laughs> as soon as as soon as Iowa, New Hampshire, those early states decide that, it's okay. You now have it down to two or three people. Which one of them is going to excel in, in a in, in that diverse uh, uh, culture and party that is the Democrats beyond Iowa, New Hampshire? And the problem that Kamala and Booker and everybody in the race had was, I just don't didn't see how anybody could beat Joe Biden's direct connection to those voters, to African-Americans. I mean, and part of it being Barack Obama's vice president. I mean, just a lot of reasons, his own 
affinity uh, and empathy and things like that. But no, I didn't think any of them would would come close once you got out of those early states. Do you think that do you think that kind of um, that kind of requirement to appeal to minority voters to get the Democratic nomination works against the Democratic nominee in, in, in the general election? Uh, it, it often it can and it depends on what's again now we're now in an electoral college situation it's not popular but we've, we've won the popular vote uh seven of the last eight elections the only popular vote we lost democrats for president was 2004 with george w's uh re-election campaign uh that's it clinton twice george bush loses the first in 2000 to gore loses the popular vote to gore he wins it when he runs for re-election after 9-11. Barack Obama twice, 2008, 2012. Trump loses to Hillary, popular vote. Trump loses to Biden, even more popular vote. So no, that's, it more comes down then to this, each state's electoral votes and what's the demographics of, of, of that state. Um, and so that's why you see places like Georgia suddenly becoming competitive for a Democrat who can pull in and excite diverse, uh, a, the diverse voter, the, the growing diversity of Georgia's voting pool. Uh, Texas will take some, you know, maybe it's coming, but it, it's down the, the line. And that's why I think the Republicans are long term. Um, if we still have a democracy uh, before they, you know, st or, or, you know, stop people from voting, et cetera, uh, long term, it's a disaster for them um, to continue to push away uh, voters that quote aren't like us, and uh, you know, all all those tactics that they that they use because they're becoming a you know a, a basically an older wider wider less diverse uh and a lot of young people who you know would consider themselves republicans can't go there because of the race and the and homophobia and i mean just they don't that at that generation that's not how they think about about they may be fiscally conservative they may not like taxes you know they're they, they, i'm not saying they're not conservative but they just can't stomach the direction the republican party's going in so long term, yeah, and I think Biden's ability, I'd actually be hard pressed to you tell me who we gave the nomination to that wouldn't have lost to Trump when Biden beat him on the Electoral College by 44,000 votes in three yeah. states. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I'm, I'm not, Kamala was on the ticket, great, but I don't, I would not have made that bet. Not, I'm not, you know, uh, uh, who else? Uh, Sanders? You know, love them if you want, but I wouldn't have made that bet. I I think uh, Biden turned out and is turning out, even as you know, to be exactly the right persona, the right person, the right maturity, the right understanding of the moment to have a chance um, to pull the country back from the brink. I thought Mayor Pete and uh, Amy Klobuchar might have might have had a chance. But um, I, I had another question for Christine. Um, you, you started your professional career outside of politics and communications. And I'm wondering what your 
having that perspective, if you had started in politics, maybe you'd have a different answer. But having started outside, having a different perspective and really understanding social media, really understanding communications from fundraising to um, event planning uh, and everything in between, I'm curious what you think really is, what are effective ways of reaching voters and engaging with voters? Sure. Um, well, actually, I was an interior design major. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I was still trying to get away from politics at that point. <laughs> um, and now I use that still because of my graphic background. Mm. And I think we get such great response from digital you know, ads and things that we can create that can you can put out on Twitter and you can really reach people that way. Um, and I just think that Facebook and Twitter ads are really great tools that we use on a daily basis for our candidates. And um, yeah, just I, I think that d digital is obviously the new way to reach voters. And she teaches me now about a lot of that, that stuff. Uh, I'm still, I'm still learning. But uh, as much as we pioneered stuff in the Dean campaign, it's just impossible to stay up. On. I mean, if I if I had one more app that I need to learn uh, is going to like break me. So <laughs> so I like Christine. What, what, what's an app? Yeah, I like Christine. I let Christine handle that stuff uh, and and the other people on my. Yeah, we're getting into TikTok, and it's just like yeah. everything. There's always a new thing to learn, and it's really cool to see how it's generating. So Christine, what Christine, what's the, what's the best part of working with your dad and what's the worst part? Oh, oh gosh. Can <laughs> get me in trouble again? Can I tell you what the best part and worst part are working with my yeah, dad? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 I want to hear from her first. Um, gosh, well, the best thing is it, it's just learning from someone who has such a deep knowledge. Like he really has been in it for a long time. <laughs> and um, I don't know, it's just, it's really cool to see him on that side because growing up I didn't really understand and now just to see what was driving him the entire time it's um it's really cool to see just you know him fight for what he believes in and doing the right thing um so that's a good thing about working for him the bad thing about working for him is i can't lie about reasons to get out of work like there's no like, <laughs> grandma's funerals or anything like that because he knows um but yeah that's probably the only bad thing Corey? Yeah. So what's the best and worst? No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> moments like right now. No, um, so I, I can't believe how quickly a half hour, 40 minutes has flown by. So I want to get into some of the nitty gritty. Uh, I sure. live in a congressional district, very, very purple, uh, Santa Clarita Valley um, in particular within California. 25 is my district. It's historically been the reddest part of this district, but even now, but now even Santa Clarita is 48% Democrat, 47% Republican, and 5% Independent, according to uh, public voting records. Christy Smith, the Democrat, just lost to Republican Mike Garcia by 333 votes out of 350,000, yeah. one tenth of one percent. So, one of my questions is, who do you think is going to decide a House race like this one? in 2022 and what issues do you think are the issues that are going to resonate with those few who are still persuadable 
I actually uh, think in a district like that one, uh, it's really who we nominate. I mean, there was like, you can't, it's gotta be somebody who's willing to talk to the other side, I think. It, it, the, 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 if we don't start, if we, if we stay in our silo, I'm gonna talk to me as a Democrat now, if we stay in our silos, we lose districts like this one. Particularly after the insurrection, I think uh, there are Republicans who are, whether they're seeing a Liz Cheney or someone else in the party uh, move away from Trumpism, they're uncomfortable with where their party's going. And they, they, they basically then can vote Democratic, can vote for a Democrat, but only when they look across the aisle, if they don't see somebody, you know, who's angry at them or is in their own silo. I mean, they, they it's gotta be somebody they perceive as willing to listen to their, to, you know, them on the issues, uh, even if they don't agree with them. Um, and so that's why I think Biden, again, going back to him, that's who, what he felt like to those, to a lot, to the, it may have only been two or 3%, uh, of them that made the difference in these, in the electoral states. But in a congressional district, that two or 3%, I mean, when you're looking at 300, 300, 400 vote difference, uh, I think, I suspect we would have won post-insurrection, I mean, because, you know, of just the difference between what what enough Republicans might've thought about, wait a minute, is this, do I really want to go that far? Uh, as angry as they were, as uh, upset with uh, the possibility of a Biden presidency as they are. Also, I think um, more importantly, it's really important that with the House, the Senate and the presidency, um, that if we as a party, as Democrats as a party can demonstrate that government is effective, we got you those relief checks, we got the infrastructure bill, whatever it is, passed and things are happening. Um, we got the vaccines to you and we got them there uh, in two to three times, uh, th two to three times the numbers we, we said we would in the first hundred days. If that in contrast with basically a, a no government party, I mean, a party that doesn't believe in, you know, that, that, you know, McConnell saying my job now is to stop Biden at every, in the Democrats at every chance. I think that if we are effective and successful at being effective and actually impacting people's lives, 2022 is we will win a lot of seats that people, you know, in a year people think we're supposed to lose seats and we are in a midterm. If uh, we we fail at being effective. I mean, basically the mantra of the Republicans since Reagan has been um, no, there is no government that's good government. Yeah. The, the only good yeah. government is no government. If we fail, forget about the, the campaigns. If we just somehow uh, do not impact and show government can impact your life in a possible positive way. If we can't do that, then we're just proving they're right. No government, you know, that no good government can, can, can exist. If we, it, and I think Biden and this administration uh, has been really solidly on that. I think that's why uh, they understand that. And I think it's also why he's not having as much trouble 
getting votes in the House and the Senate, I mean, holding the majority, the fragile majority together to get the votes he needs, even though there are plenty of progressives that want more or plenty of uh, conservative, moderate Democrats who, who wait, that's going too far, a mansion being one of those. They, when it comes to crunch time in the votes, he's been able to deliver because they think they understand the stakes. It's got to be delivering impactful, effective government, getting something done, even if we have to do it without the Republicans. I think if we do that and we have candidates who they don't they can be progressive, they can be moderate, they could you know, have different positions on, on issues. But more importantly, really reach out across the aisle. I mean, in terms of how they talk about it. So, so what you're saying is that what you're saying is that the key variable in a candidate is style, not policy. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. And I think Biden's a great example of that, by the way. People thought he wouldn't be as progressive of a president as he is, you know, et cetera. He said it's going to be boring. But I think I think that quality that people he, he listens to me, even though I don't like where he is on this policy, he's listening to me. He always has that. And I think I think the best thing anybody could do is follow Joe Biden's lead. I mean, in terms, I'm not talking about on issues, I'm just talking about the tone the and keeping the discipline and focus that they've had on the two or three things they decided they needed to get done and they were gonna do it and they're doing it, no matter what else the distractions, no matter, who's showing up at the border. And I know that's a problem. I mean, you know, but they stayed on, on um, their kept their focus on how they were going to impact people, kitchen table issues directly. And I think that's um, while again, the Republicans voted no on everything, didn't yeah. vote for this, you know? So I think that contrast is going to be pretty impactful in 2022. If we if we have a discipline as a party, if Democrats are disciplined enough as a party to keep that intact through 2022. After that, um, that if we succeed in that, then then I don't know what <laughs> then then people go. You know, I wanted more, and damn it, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna say so. You know, so that may happen. But hopefully, that 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 kind of inner party squabble, we see it now with Liz Cheney and the 150 Republicans who this week uh, started, you know, signed the letter saying that, that they're, they, they want to start, may threaten to start a new party. We're seeing that that kind of schism right now happen on the other side, that combined with an, a Democratic party that's being effective and impactful, that could be a real game changer. I think the elephant in the room is inflation. Yeah, I think though the the reality is we went through two pieces of this, I think. One was the the panic as we went into the pandemic and you couldn't find toilet paper or anything because of the of, of that panic. I I think there's the the a lot of this is sort of explainable by okay, it's it's open season now, people are starting to go out and do things. And the economy has been used to providing this many of everything. You know, no one's 5,000 cars are being sent out a week when all of a sudden there's demand for 50,000 cars. So guess what's going to happen initially? The prices are going to go, go up. Some of that is the money in people's pocket. I'm not putting that aside. I just do think it's kind of like, wait a guy, everybody's been in lockdown or some 
personal even like I didn't I barely I did I think I traveled twice this year in the last year it, you know and this is uh, we're somebody who Christine can tell you probably on a plane 100 150 days a year but twice two days this last year well I'm gonna start you know that's what I'm saying all that's gonna start up again supply and demand in initially is gonna be out of whack you're gonna see prices go up. I don't, I'm not enough of an economist then to then say, is that, you know, I, I'll rely on Yellen. I'd much rather re- rely on Yellen than the last Treasury Secretary <laughs> to, to tell yeah. us, uh, or the last administration to, to uh, you, you know, to deal with whether the Fed's got a, you know, and, and the Fed, um, whether they've got what they, what they're going to do to adjust interest rates and those kinds of things or issue uh, to stay uh, involved in the market, but uh, but I do think there's a there's a there's a pretty easy explanation for why we would be seeing inflation as the economy starts up again and demand outpaces supply, particularly as people are there. That's in terms of hiring, you got to do that first while so demand for supply is happening. That's going to make higher wage. I mean, so all that is, I think, definitely something that's going to happen. Uh, and how Biden handles that, yeah, will matter too. So in order to motivate the base, um, solid Democratic voters, as well as persuade enough of the folks who are persuadable, uh, what I'm hearing is to a good case to make in 2022 is competent government. Uh, get get out the vaccines, uh, stabilize the economy, um, stabilize what's happening at the border, which, by the way, uh, I know yeah. that you know my my congressman today on on his uh, his op ed that they published in in the Signal was decrying open borders and how all the criminals are coming and and causing crime in our yeah. town. Which, by the way, uh, Biden is the, the the administration is reuniting families. That that yeah, no, it's doing a good job on this stuff. But yeah, it, what I meant that's what I meant about these different things that are legitimate problems, but they're actually handling much better than the outrage machine. Yeah. Um, you know, now the Middle East is all his fault. Right. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, the hack on uh, on the pipeline uh, is all his fault. Gas prices are going yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, not everything is, you know, th- th- that's what I'm saying. I think they've done a good job of, yes, dealing with those things. I mean, they're dealing with the pipeline, but not sort of falling into the trap of, hyperventilating both ways yeah. and actually moving all those things, you, you know, to, to a, a place in the country psyche that they really don't deserve to be. I'm not saying that the, that the border shouldn't be, but just the way the other side tries to you know, bait you into a fight. And I think we've, a lot of Democrats fell, fall into that from time to time where we just immediately want to punch back. I don't think that's that's what I'm saying. I I think Biden's got the right way, at least with today, with yeah. um, how to handle it. And the one other thing I would say, though, that people, we all, all of us, need to talk to our neighbors, and I mean to our Republican neighbors, to our conservative neighbors, to our independent neighbors, to our Democrat. What what we the we all by going into our silo and staying there and only talking to each other, help keep them in their silo. And I don't mean that, what I mean, I don't mean that their fault. I'm just saying if we all stay in our silos and don't reach across 
and try to sit down, yeah, with a cup of coffee with that Trump neighbor that you haven't, that was a good friend of yours two or three years ago, but you stopped talking to six months into the Trump, or maybe two days after the Trump, after the crowd lying. Yeah, that's not a good recipe for making up those 300 votes uh, yeah. in the district, right? We can, we, 2,000 people in your district making a commitment today that they're going to work on on literally trying to talk and slowly with people on the other side, probably make up that difference uh, by the time we get to election day. Big time. So, Christine, what are, for, for you, your circle of influence and what you're seeing perhaps um, in your social, uh, social engagement uh, online, what are those issues that motivate folks to vote in the midterms? What are those issues or what are strategies that you can deploy um, fr from your, you know, from your position uh, to get that in our district, that 333 votes to go the other way? Sure. Well, I think sort of what we've seen since Biden has become president and the 147 uh, senators and congressmen who voted against them and are now supporting voter suppression laws across the country. I think that's a huge issue that is going to motivate a lot of people in the midterms because we have to hold them accountable for what happened and what they're trying to do to our democracy. And I think I, for me personally, that's like a huge motiva motivating factor um, is just these laws that are coming out of states like Florida and Georgia that are pretty much voter suppression like it's not a good thing and that's why we need to you know hold these people accountable yeah there are some great resources um by the way uh, and and then ask your I'll, uh, then you can jump in pops but i just want to point out that uh the gop democracy scorecard was put out by uh, bill crystal elizabeth newman there are a number of yeah long time republicans one. Um, that put this together. It's a really easy to use reference, and I just, I just crossed, uh, I just cross matched, which were the congressional districts that were won by the thinnest margins, five percent and below, and which of those Republican House members uh, got a D minus, a D or or an F on that scorecard. And there's over twenty of them, twenty of them. So uh, this kind of leads to a question that I had: Are you as bearish? as most, uh, as I'm hearing most about Democrats retaining the House in 2022? Look, by every historical measure, Democrats should lose the House in 2022. That, it's just a fact. There's like no, you know, one president, three presidents have not in history, I'm talking about since Washington to today. I do want to push back on that a little bit, though. That's just a technical analysis uh, data point. It's not really a but, fundamental data data point. Well, the well, okay, it's a fact data point, and that is that three presidents have actually not lost seats. One, okay, the only one to not lose seats in my lifetime in politics was George, George w. w. Bush, Bush. in yeah. in uh, after. 9-11, uh, literally the election immediate, like nine months after 9-11. So that, or, uh, 12 months later. Anyway, uh, that's one. Two, take that away. You're right. Okay. You challenge that. Let's throw that one out. 
okay? The reality, we do not control the legislatures that are going to be mm. drawing the lines for yeah. the 2022 right, thing. They, depending on which, and there's a bunch of people who I rely on, the Cook Report, uh, Dave Wasserman, people who, who have done you know, real analysis off the census and looking at the maps, who think that given the early census, it's anywhere between 3.5 and 10 new safe Republican seats will, will be drawn by Republican legislatures with the power of drawing a safe Republican seat. I mean, things like California is losing seats. Montana is gaining seats. You do not, you don't need to know that what data point that is. I'm just saying, you yeah. know, no, that's not, yeah, so, so what I'm trying to say is if you take all the measures that generally like from reapportionment, redrawing of lines, uh, historic uh, loss of seats and et cetera, every single one of those indicators points to a, a democratic loss of the house. So that's, you asked me, do I agree? I'm saying that's the, the, the reality. You got to start with that. I think that you're right, that that doesn't count. Wait a minute. The vaccines, yep. the, the coronavirus is, is, you know, if we're luck, looking into 2022, the, the coronavirus uh, is literally down to, you know, totally in control people are vaccinated, people are back with their lives, uh, you know, uh, moving forward, the economy roaring so kids much so that school. we, so kids are in school and so much so we have to, with economy's going so, so strong, we have to worry about inflation, you know, which is a legitimate worry. But I think all that, uh, and the Republicans said no to all of it, said no to all of it the entire way and are still saying that that Donald Trump's president of the United States and Joe Biden's illegitimate. So can we, now on the other hand, I just want to make sure, Jim Jordan's not going to lose his seat. No. Okay, ah. David is this, no, no, that's my point. Jeff so, Seitz, I think, is the leading Democratic candidate there. Yeah, the problem is we only have the the the, the House by like five seats or so. Yes. Yeah. That, by the way, this is my whole my whole thing. I I think, Losing the House in 2022 would be as devastating, if not almost more devastating, than losing to Trump in, in 2020. Because I mean, because you're talking about they, they, they have this 139 people we're talking about. Let's say they have voted to the, overturn the election. Yeah, right. They overturned the election. Okay, so to get to 218, they need like 80 seats. I mean, there's okay. That by the way, they already have like sixty something of them. Whether right, right. So let's say they thirteen, fourteen card carrying moderates of the Republican Party gain seats in these in your district for is is one of them. So a moderate Republican runs and wins. Okay, they're now one of the eighty sane people in a majority controlled by the one thirty nine who voted to overthrow this election. Do you know who the chairs of the committees are gonna be? Do you know who the speaker is gonna yeah. be? By the way, I don't think it'll be McCarthy. And how many minutes is it till you're in Benghazi-like hearings on Hunter Biden, Ukraine, 
uh, impeaching Biden, all the stuff. I mean, there's, we will be so far back right in the Trumpism soup that is destroying the democracy and it's all hanging by five or six seats right now. So me, I'm like, hell yeah, we could lose it. Everybody out there, talk, find some of your old friends, start talking to them about where this, about the, you know, where we need to come together and why. Put your uh, purity tests away for a cycle support you know your candidate etc but do, this is not the time to be my way or the highway in a primary campaign which by the way is what happened that's what biden was able to do but a lot of people put their my way uh down and said okay biden's going to be the nominee i'm going to support him 100 percent and and we won and i think we have to be like that in every district that we can be like that in yeah so full disclosure, when the election first happened, I was I was happy about what it initially looked like, which is it initially looked like it was a center holds election. Biden won, but the uh, you know the Senate was still up for grabs, um, but the uh, the Democrats controlled the House but lost seats. I, I liked that, but then you know Trump turned up the volume on you know, the stolen election, uh, January 6th happened. My own Republican congressman voted to overturn Arizona and Pennsylvania electoral college right. votes. He voted to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene on the education committee, the education committee. Yeah. He voted uh, against impeachment. He's and he you know, probably so, voted to kick Cheney out the out of the leadership. too. I'm curious how he voted. You know, I, I wouldn't surprise well, me one bit if he was completely hypocritical in that regard. Uh, the, to, to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene on the committees, right. but to kick Cheney out yeah. of leadership. I'm sure and, he um, did. I don't I, I don't need to. I'm, you're curious. I, I just can't believe he, he didn't did. do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so but I, gosh, I could go. I have hours and hours of questions left, um, but um, I want to make sure we hit a couple of important pieces of business. Uh, the one question I will ask is, well, let's see, do I want to ask about the future of Republicans like the Kinzingers and the Romneys and the Mia Loves? Or uh, I'll give, I'll let you either answer that question or if you have a question for us, do you have, you know, so those are your two options. Do you want to answer the question no, about the future I, of Kinzinger or, or do you want to ask us a question? No, I, I think, uh, I think that Liz Cheney has the real possibility of winning uh, the GOP presidential uh, Bingo, you, you, you stole my thunder. In 2024. Um, I've said this for a few weeks uh, on on the trip, that trippy show, the podcast, uh, because it just seems to me that we could be seeing the reverse of what yeah. of, of how the party became Trump in the first 2016. Place. He, he was yeah. the only Trump in a, in a big in a big field, in a big field of everybody's. If she if guy. she runs, it'll be a bunch of Trump wannabes, Trump, uh, wannabes. and her. And Trump won Iowa with twenty four percent of the vote, and that's it. Yeah. And he never did get to fifty percent nope. of the vote in the primaries. Yeah. Um. And the way delegates get picked, etc. You know that that just winning, uh, by a small mar margin, and then slowly growing a little every time somebody else drops out. That's how he slowly ate the party up. So I think you're right. I think this could be, I've been saying this for like several weeks that I, I thought 
that if she gets in and she's running against, you know, 12 Trump wannabes uh, who are all trying what to. She's running against because, Trump. Well, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, that's a different thing, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, He's going to tease about it until the very last yeah. minute. And then. But I, I, I don't think that'll end up happening. Um, uh, but oh, we can get to that. But I think what's the, the more logical thing that's going to happen is Holly Cruz, you, you know, everybody trying, the, even DeSantis. Haley trying to, people that we, DeSantis, yeah, people that even like you might have early on thought, you know, uh, would be a moderate in the race. No, she's going to, Haley's going to go crazy over when she realizes that's not going to work. I mean, for her, she'll go and you'll have 10, 12 uh, Trump wannabes. And, and I think that in a place like Iowa, particularly in some of those early states, you know, New Hampshire, uh, see how the calendar plays out. But I think um, Liz Cheney could get 24, 25% of the vote against a 75% Trump party. And that winning and the coverage, et cetera, starts to bring a few more points of, you know, oh, common sense people go yeah. getting their senses together. And she could eat the party back the other way. And then you say, like, boy, Joe, you're rooting for Liz Cheney. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> you know, no. Uh, yeah, I am rooting for Liz Cheney uh, and and Kensinger and anybody else and the and the, the the Lincoln Project and and anybody else out there. We should embrace and and uh, you know not. Oh, yeah, how can you support her? She's she's you know she's so conservative. She's a warmonger. Well, that Trump will will label her with her dad's uh, moniker. But uh, I, for for one, I think uh, she's shown a tremendous amount of strength, and uh, at a time when we need we need more voices like hers yeah. that can bring us, yeah. It, but also, hey, so you know th that gives you something to talk about, right? With those those people, hey, have you, what do you think of this Liz Cheney thing? I'm not sure it makes sense that they, how do they keep Marjorie Taylor Greene, but but dump her? I mean, are you really? Can you really? You know, and just get into the conversation. Yeah. Well, I can't, gosh, I can't believe this time has flown. I, I so many more questions for you. Um, one quick point though, and, and feel free to steal this shamelessly, but as much as Mark Meadows and, and uh, Jordan were a major thorn in the ass to when Boehner was speaker and then Ryan was speaker, I think that there's a possibility for a new caucus in the Republican party, call it a truth caucus, for them to be an even bigger pain in the ass now, get Cheney and, and Kinzinger, and and those those Republicans who got an A and a B on the Republic the GOP democracy uh, report card, but um, before we go, well, I think they they can. I just don't think they'll have the the power is on that one thirty nine side, right? I mean, that's who the the leadership. Yeah, but jo Jordan and Meadows only had twenty people in their little uh, what do they call it, the Freedom Caucus or something? You know, so yeah, I, that's I, true. I think you can create um, you can be a wrench in the in a machine. Oh, she's. Cheney's going to be a wrench. I yeah. definitely think she is. So we'll yeah. see what, let her, let's see what she does uh, and how she organizes it. I want to make sure folks know how to find you, how to find that trippy show, how to find you, Christine. Um, and then uh, tell us about Operation 147. So uh, you can find me at, at Joe Trippy on Twitter. And that trippy show, you can get it anywhere you, you get your podcast, anywhere you get this podcast, you know, Spotify, Apple, uh, any of them. And then uh, Operation 147 is an organization I helped found, which basically 
you know, basically puts pressure on the 147, the, the 139 in the House and the senators uh, add up to 147 who voted uh, to overturn the election and not certify the electoral results. Um, we are targeting, and we're, look, we're realistic. We know certain of them are in, you know, ruby red, 95% Republican um, districts are never going to lose. So we're, but we are looking at the 13 to 14 of those that we think are in like districts like at least make up a, a district like yours in terms of where the, you know, like close races, Trump won by three points, those kind of places. There's 13 or 14 of them. And we think, look, there'll be plenty of people who are focused on defending Democratic incumbents, but uh, our intent is to focus our fire on the 13 or 14 of those 147 that we think are are vulnerable if, if we get them the resources. And uh, if people want to check out uh, Operation 147, that's at 147 Operation on Twitter. And there's links there to, to go to the website and things. So terrific. Appreciate we'll be that. linking it too. And Christine, how can we find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Christine Trippy. Um, I'm starting to post more on Great. there. So um, yeah, that's where you can find me. And I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for having me on. And it was a really cool experience. This is a real treat for me. It's so because you're you're sort of a hero of mine, Joe, even though I'm way more conservative, probably on a issue by issue basis on a lot of them anyway. But uh, I really appreciate your your story. Um, I, you, I'm encouraged by your your uh, Christine, your entry into the into the game and um, just learn so much. And I do think that there's common cause for folks who are committed to, uh, you know, basic human decency. You yeah, know, you you wouldn't think that that'd be yeah. controversial, but yeah, I I really believe that there's well, but, a lot of common cause there. But that's the the thing I think that when you get angry at the other side, we lose our own capacity to be decent and civil sometimes too much too many times, and that's why I think um, what's important about your your podcast and and what you do is to encourage uh, you, you know that that sense of coming together. Um, and so I, I thank you so much for for having us both on. It's great to have the, the two, the, the two father uh, kid teams uh, <laughs> on at the same time. There's That's the first time yet. Christine and I've been on and uh, it was a little awkward at times and I'm gonna have a talk with her after a while. <laughs> she, she has to interrupt you more often. Yeah, yeah right. sorry. There you go. All right, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, Please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.